Well, okay, here we go. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, again, these are just going to be some things that I'm throwing out there uh, that I think are significant in the book of Genesis and really enhance the idea of the seed line in the book of Genesis and really make, when you begin to study that, you see it as a major, major theme uh, for the book of Genesis and the manner in which it's presented uh, tells us that it's of utmost importance beyond anything else. So going, of course, we re- well, I don't want to get started reviewing, and then I'll take up all my time, but, uh, um, you know, let me just go to chapter 4, verse 1. Let's just do that, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis says this, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. There's so many comparisons that you can make um, between uh, Cain and his descendants and Abel and his descendants. It's just amazing in the, in the whole book of Genesis, uh, which would really be another message. And I, I'll debate that as to whether we want to go there for another day. But you notice that uh, one of the things that stood out here is that Eve, in the birth of Cain, says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. But when you come to the end of this chapter, in the verses that Anna read, you remember from last week, it says there, Adam knew his wife, same phrase we had before. And she bare a son, same phrase again, and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed. She doesn't say God hath gotten me a man, but another seed. And again, I think that behooves us to pay attention because it points out to us the peculiarity of the book of Genesis and the seed line, as we're referring to it. That is, from generation to generation, from individual to individual, from male to male, as a continuous line of those that were directly connected, seed, seed, seed. But in conjunction with that, it doesn't really hit you or make any sense Unless we go back to Genesis 3.15 and understand, well, actually go back to the creation of man and, and Adam and his wife Eve and understand from verses 26 and 28 of chapter 1 that God made man to have dominion over his creation, to rule. And we mentioned this also last week, but we have to bring this thought in to remind us of the importance of the seed line then is that built into this is not just a continuation of a genealogy, but a royal genealogy, a kingly genealogy. 
and it will lead somewhere. And the early writers, the early, the, and, and the individuals here, and, uh, you know, under, it seems like without it ever being expressed, they understood that. They understood the importance of that. And we mentioned how Tamar, you know, you remember the incident with Judah and Tamar and how he refused to give uh, his other son, Shelah, to his daughter, well, it had been a former daughter-in-law at that point, but his daughter-in-law, Tamar, he didn't want to do it. And it upset God. And so through deception, you know, she, she can, keeps the seed going. And you get the idea that there were people along the line in different places that understood what God was doing to keep the seed line going. It had to be. It could not be broken in any sense of the word. In any way could it be stopped. And you also notice here then with, um, in verse 25, then men began men to call upon the name of the Lord. If you look at the many, many references, and we're going to look at a few, but there are many, many references in, throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New of this phrase, call upon the Lord. And when you, when you look at those references, you'll notice that it's always a believer who calls on the Lord. And you get the idea from this that wrapped up in this calling on the Lord is the idea of worship. Now, Men have skewed that whole idea by going to Romans chapter 10 and trying to pull salvation into the picture and say that, you know, men are saved by calling upon the Lord. I mean, that's one of the key elements. You can hardly pick up a gospel track, it seems like, but what they'll quote one of those verses about calling on the Lord. But calling on the Lord is really a distinct privilege and unique thing related to those who had faith in God and those who worship him. And because of that, in other, all the other references, I think we can infer safely that this is what is being talked about here. That at this peculiar point in time, men began to call upon the Lord in the sense of worship. And of course, you understand there that Verse 26, the word Lord is, they called upon Yahweh. You know, and, and it's, it's not the first time Yahweh is mentioned, but it, it is a, in a unique place because earlier the word Elohim or El, the mighty God, is the predominant word used. But now they call upon Yahweh. Now, um, Let's turn to chapter 12 of Genesis. Just, and we're just going to look at a few verses here about this idea of calling on the Lord. One of the first ones we come across is um, Abraham. And you know the verse well, chapter 12, verse 8, where God had promised him the land of Canaan as an inheritance. In verse 7, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. 
And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then if you just turn a few pages over to chapter 21, we find Abraham in the same position. Chapter 21, verse 33. Only here it says, Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 26 and verse 24, we find Isaac doing the same thing. In verse 24, the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants digged a well. And of course, another predominant thing that we see in connection with this is, is the frequent building of an altar. And so we have the idea of worship in all these connections. Then look over to... Uh, um, Psalm 18 and verse 3. And of course, the Psalms are preeminently about worship above everything. They're addressed to the Lord. They're expressing the heart of, of these individuals towards the Lord God. And in, in Psalm 18... A Psalm of David, verse 3, he says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Of course, here, a referencing of prayer, but a referencing of calling upon the Lord in worship and, and dependence upon God. And you can look these up. There are just multiple verses in the Old Testament regarding this. And if you were to turn over to the New Testament in Romans chapter 10, a common and, and familiar passage here. And you can't hardly go anywhere without starting with at least with verse 9. Where he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And of course, the simple statement on its face there tells us, believe in your heart and thou shalt be saved. Following that then, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all uh, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call 
on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And of course, I'm sure you've heard many, many messages about putting this whole line in reverse and you find that belief comes first, then comes calling upon the Lord. And calling upon the Lord everywhere else in Scripture has to do with the privilege of, a, of one who is already a believer. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. And he's talking about not initial salvation in any sense of the word, but about that full salvation that comes ultimately to the one who has placed his belief, his trust, his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having said all that, um, I want to go back to the book of Genesis and back to chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17. And I want to speak just a little bit about the references to the matter of royalty. You know, not a lot is said in the book of Genesis about this, but the overtones are clear, it seems to me at least, from the beginning when you contemplate the, the value that was placed on the seed line by all the people that are mentioned in the genealogy all the way through the book of Genesis. But it's not absent. We find in chapter 17 in dealing with Abraham. Look at verse 6. Concerning Abraham, he says, I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now, it's interesting that Abraham's never called a king, but kings are going to come from him. But yet we find that Abraham really is treated very much like a king. He has all the markings of royalty. And I want to look at a couple of those. But also, if you look first at verse 16 regarding Sarah, it says, I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Now, if you look at um, chapter 14, back up just a little bit to chapter 14, and look at verse 17. Of course, you know the whole story here about the kings that rose up uh, in confederacy and took Lot and his family, and of course, Abraham comes to the rescue, and in verse 17, it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, after his return from the slaughter of uh, Keter Lomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. Now, just that verse alone, all these various kings that were involved in this battle come to Abraham. And treat him on the same level, on, the, on a kingly level as they are. So even though he may not be called a king, he gets the, the respect of, of a king. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him. So you have a king, another king, blessing Abraham, though he not be called directly a king himself. And then turn over to chapter 21. In chapter 21, beginning with verse 22, it says there, It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his hosts, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. We have another incident here. Abimelech and his chief captain, and they come and meet up with Abraham, and they enjoy, if I can use that word, a relationship with Abraham on a, a level that would be, we would call as equals. They regard Abraham in the same way. They respect him in the same way as they would as if he was addressing another king. And then if we look at chapter 23 and verse 6, And of course, if you, if you continue reading on about Abimelech there, you can see the whole relationship, uh, the way they treated each other was like equals. In chapter 23 and verse 6, we have this little phrase here where Abraham is, they're addressing Abraham, and they, in verse 5 it says, The children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince. I don't know if your Bible has a marginal note or anything like that in it, but uh, other translations render it a prince of God. And the word mighty there is the word where you get from the word El Ohim, a mighty, powerful God. And here they're calling Abraham a mighty one, a mighty prince, a prince of God. Um, Young's translation, the Concordant, and Rotherham, they all translate it, a prince of God. So you have in these passages indications that although Abraham's not ever called a king directly in Genesis, you have this kingly notion applied to him in his treatment by others. And of course, above all else, the whole idea of mentioning Abraham goes back to chapter 12 and the promise that God gave from him, uh, to him that he would, through him, bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. So there was this royal expectation, if we can term it that way, of what would come through the line of Abraham. And, you know, scholars debate to this day about how Genesis all came to be put together. And there are some interesting phrases in there. And you wonder, you do wonder, even though Moses is called the author, you wonder how they got there. Uh, 
and I don't have any trouble whatsoever believing that Moses did it because I'm just so simple-minded. I just think, well, if God said Moses wrote it, then Moses wrote it. But this, this recognition is what I'm trying to point out of knowing that there was something going on from the very beginning of creation with Adam and Eve that they were placed here as royal figures, agents of God on a kingly basis. And when they disobeyed God, they lost that position, and God has maintained a line through the book of Genesis to let us know that he's got something planned to bring man back into that same position that they lost. Now, let me go on. Well, if we turn over to chapter 26, and verse 26, we were, we were at verse well, 25, you remember, he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. That's Isaac. Verse 26, then Abimelech went to him from Gerar. So he goes from Abraham. Now he goes to Abim- uh, Isaac, Abimelech does. And he treats him as an equal the same way he did with Abraham. Because what did he do? Well, he says in verse uh, 27, Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt, betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee. Now, you don't make covenants with peons underlings you make them with those who are men of equal stature who are on the same who are looked upon as being as the same level or same par with you and so Abimelech though he treated Abraham as a king now he treats Abraham's son Isaac in the same fashion and then let's look over at chapter 35 And verse 11. Now he appears unto Jacob in verse 9. God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, and thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, But Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be out of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. So again, we just see the same thought pattern continuing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob of this kingly royal line. And then if you look at chapter 36... 
You see this uh, genealogy of Esau. And when you get down to the end of the genealogy, which ends at verse 30, look at the comment then that is made in verse 31. It's just kind of tossed in there, as it were. And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. So that tells us that when this book, the Pentateuch, was written, when Moses recorded these things, he anticipated and saw, excuse me, saw that there would come a day when there would be kings ruling in Israel. And he foresaw that. And so he understood then the importance of this line. Uh, And then lastly, because I'm out of time, but lastly, I want to hit upon this thing with Judah and Tamar again. Chapter 38 of Genesis, and we don't need to rehash the story. I think you understand it, uh, what took place there. And I didn't put my verse down. I just put Genesis 38. So I got to go back and find... The verse I wanted. I want the. Yeah, right at the end, verse 29. Of course, we could look at how the whole thing came, came about uh, in verse 27. It came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread saying this came out first and it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out and she said how hast thou broken forth this breach be upon thee therefore his name was called Perez and afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand and his name was called Zerah. Now, again, it's interesting. The genealogy in Genesis ends right here. You don't see it taken up again until you get all the way over here to, you got to turn several books over to the book of Ruth. And when you come to the book of Ruth, of course, again, the familiarity of what took place there should be no surprise to us. At the very end of this book, after we read this marvelous story about how God worked through a famine to preserve, again, the line through a Gentile woman named Ruth, and in chapter 4, verse, 20, uh, verse 18, he says there, Now these are the generations of Perez. It takes right up from Genesis chapter 38 all the way up to Ruth chapter 4. But the connection is made. There is a direct line, a direct seed line all the way through. 
And Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon, and Solomon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And so all you have to do then is jump all the way to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1. And let me just point out a couple of things there. Because when you stop to remember, well, I'll just point these out as we go. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And what a generation it is. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And he begins with Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and, and Judas begat Perez, and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and so on. And you come down to verse 6, Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon, and of her that had been the wife of Uriah, which of course Bathsheba. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and so on. And so you had, this, you had this beautiful line maintained even after Solomon in the divided kingdom. The records were dutifully kept. Why would they do all this if they did not know or if they did not anticipate and, or, and if the chief men of this of these nations or and and of Israel and this nation Israel understand what God was doing what God had promised of a royal nature a regal king that was to come from the loins of Abraham and then you continue on through the the uh, genealogy and you come down to verse 12, and it says there, and after they were brought to Babylon. Now they're all the way up to the exile. Even in exile, they maintained their records. They knew the genealogy. They knew who was in the line, the seed line. And they, they understood it. And then finally, the culmination of it all in verse 16. And boy, I like to think, wow. After the exile, you had 400 years in which God did not speak. No prophets spoke for 400 years. They're called the 400 silent years. I have a book in my library by um, Harry Ironside called the 400 silent years. And that's a very common expression referring to that time from the exile and the return all the way to the coming of Christ. No prophets spoke, but the records were kept. And the genealogy was expressed all the way down to 400 years later when a man sent out a decree, a pagan king, a ruler, that said, we're going to tax you. We want all of you to go back to the city of your birth. And here's this little, little family. 
man and his wife, and they're making the trip. She's pregnant. And he says, I know it wasn't me. And from that comes the birth of our Savior. And what's so marvelous about it? The genealogies just come to an end. You don't have any more. And so why is that so important? Why does that, why should that just, oh man, I mean, just set you tingling inside to know that God kept that seed line alive had the record kept all the way up to the birth of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then it stops. And that tells us that what that singular seed that he had promised through Abraham, boom, he's arrived. Here he is. And boy, every Jew, every Jew should have known that. And to know this is the one. But of course, they rejected him. But it's only for a time. It's only for a time because over and over again, it's stated that God is going to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And it is through him that God is working now to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth and ultimately then it will be fulfilled in its totality, in its completeness, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and takes his rightful place on his throne and begins to rule the earth in righteousness and bring peace that we all want and that we all long for. I hope when you read the book of Genesis that you'll read it with a new freshness and a new fervor and pay attention to those little details and to read it with a new light to understand the message of and God's activity in keeping that seed line going. And all the and as we said last week, God never ever clouds over or hushes over, as it were, the little bumps and the bruises and the failures, the sins of men along the way. And yet he still maintains his promise. And he has kept it to show us that he is going to do what he promised to do. And if that doesn't chill you, if that doesn't set you on edge, as it were, to realize the implications of God's promises to you and me. That if he said he's going to let us share in the rule of his son to those who suffer with him, then you know what? You better believe that. You better believe it's as true as it was to those men in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, as it was to those men in the nation of Israel who diligently, generation after generation, kept those records so that we would have those today. That is an awesome, awesome thing. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing these things to us to enlighten our hearts, 
to give us the soundness of assurance of what you are going to do. Just one more thing, Father, that we can look to in your word with confidence and assurance to know that when those little hard days come and we begin to wonder what's happening and the pressures of life build, to know that nothing has changed, nothing is going to stop you, nothing is going to prevent you from bringing these things to pass. And so as we look around us in the world today and we see the things that are going on, to know that out there in the world, these things are not happening without purpose or plan, but all is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray today. Amen.